And uh, as you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bibles and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We are marching through the book of Ecclesiastes, and we are now finding ourselves in chapter 3, where the topic of time is presented to us. And at the very least, there's one thing that all of us have in common, one thing that we all share, and that is the same measure of time. Not one of us has more time than another in a given day. All of us have 24 hours to work with on every day of our lives. None of us can squeeze more out of a day than others when it comes to time. We all have the same amount of time. And the issue here is not how much time do you have, but what will you do with the time that you have been given? Benjamin Franklin once said, do not squander time, for it is the stuff of which life is made. Time is something that we all experience and we all know, but we all find it very hard to define. Aside from counting seconds and minutes and hours and months and years and decades, it's something that is a little bit abstract to our finite minds. I think it's helpful to understand um, even what Benjamin Franklin has said here, Time, in essence, is the succession of moments. And moments are what life is made up of. It's been said that lost time is never found. One person said that they long, oh, how they long to stand on a corner and beg for people's wasted time. It is the most precious of commodities, but sadly, it is often only and finally appreciated after it is gone or when there is so little of it left. The preacher in Ecclesiastes writes to us what is arguably the most famous poem of all time in regards to time. It's a poem that has been recited at both Christian funerals and unbelieving secular funerals alike. It's a poem that has been used as the foundation for songs, both secular and Christian. It is well known. It's likely you have heard it before. It's recognized for its beauty, both in its structure, its rhythm, its cadence, and in its content. The preacher has been dealing with all of the difficult questions of life up to this point. He's been searching for the meaning of life under the sun, life apart from God, and he's come to a lot of conclusions. He's tested and experimented with the different aspects of life that we tend to find meaning in and from, a work and pleasure and wisdom and all of those things he says fall short and leave us still grasping for something more. It leaves us somewhat empty and sometimes emptier than when we began the search in the first place. He's been asking the question, what's the point? What's the point of life? Because he wants us to truly grasp the point of life. He wants us to see that life is not vanity, that it does have meaning, it does have purpose, and it is meant to be lived on purpose to the glory of God. While he continues that search, He does turn a bit of a corner here. He's kind of been weaving God into this picture, and he's got two kind of competing worldviews that he's wrestling with. He's wrestling with the worldview apart from God, and he's wrestling with the worldview with God. 
And he keeps kind of leaping back and forth between these worldviews, weaving them in and out together, testing one and then being reminded of the other. He's seen in his search under the sun, apart from God, the limitations, and now he begins to ask what we are to do with the life that we have been given. It is one of the most important questions that you can be asking yourself today. What do I do with the life that I have been given? And he begins with time. What do we do with time? That's the question. What do we do with the time that we have been given? First, I want you to consider this. Consider our time. Consider our time. Let me read the passage for us, and then we'll jump in and pull it apart together. Beginning in verse 1, he says this, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to to be joyful and to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Here, the preacher has so much to say about time that more than ever, perhaps, we need to hear. And the first thing he wants us to do as he explores time is simply to consider our time, to consider the essence of time, the very nature of time. It's important as you read the poem, the first eight verses that have been given to us, to understand that this poem is not prescriptive, it's descriptive. In other words, it's not telling you what you're supposed to do with your time or how you're to arrange your calendar. It's telling you really what is common among all people, what the experience is among all people, that there are various times and seasons that make up human reality and existence. Now, as you read this poem, I think maybe you notice there's a certain beauty to this poem, isn't there? There's a certain rhythm and a cadence to this poem that has a recognizable beauty to it. The poem itself is made up of 14 contrasting pairs that bring together the common experiences and the beautiful and sometimes painful complexities of life. We find ourselves in this poem, and that's essentially what the preacher is attempting to do. He's drawing us into this, and he's saying, look, this is the experience of what it means to be human. 
There is an ebb and a flow to life that we all must face and we all must come to grips with. In multiple places, in fact, I think maybe you can see yourself in this poem. You can kind of see as you maybe heard that poem read over, you read the words, you're kind of like, yeah, there, there I am. I, I feel this here. I'm at this season of life. I'm feeling like this is a season uh, where it's a time to plant, a, a time to, to kind of move forward, a, a new path in life, or maybe it's a time to pluck up what is planted. Maybe it's time for a new season, and, and what was done before it needs to be scrapped, and there's something new in store for me. Maybe you find yourself in some of the experiences that are being drawn to the forefront here. Some of the good experiences, a time to laugh, or maybe some of the hard experiences, the bad experiences, a time to, time to mourn. Maybe some of you are finding yourself in a joyful season of life. Maybe some of you are in an incredibly painful season of life. You look at the seasons that are described here, and one of the things that becomes evident is some of these seasons are things that are outside, entirely outside of your control. They're things that simply seem to just happen to you. For example, a time to to be born and a time to die. That's something that you ultimately don't have control over. And yet at the same time, here what is described are some things that seem to be within our scope of control. They they seem to describe a lot of relational uh, components to our lives, a time to embrace and a time to refrain. And some scholars, if you're like, what does that mean? Some scholars believe that's talking about the intimacy in a human relationship. And by the way, if you just want some clarity on a time to embrace, that would be in the context of marriage. A time to refrain is every other time. There's aspects of relationships we see here, a time to be silent and a time to speak. Some of us are learning these lessons. We see in this poem, as well as certain responses to life that are inevitable, the things that happen to us and just essential human responses and emotions, again, praising and mourning, laughing and weeping, This really is intended less for us to kind of dig into the particulars and figure out where we find ourselves in its entirety and more to realize that this really is the story of our lives. This is the story of our existence. And these are the ebbs and flows that every single one of us will face as we live this life. We're going to go through seasons. Some of them are going to be incredibly joyful. Some of them are going to be filled with laughter. Some of them are going to be filled with new and exciting adventures. Some of them are going to be filled with tragedy and pain and sorrow and hardships. Sometimes these two things will exist side by side in the same moment, in the same day. Sometimes these seasons will feel like they are short-lived. Other seasons will feel like they last for an eternity. Maybe you find yourself somewhere in this passage this morning and it's helpful for you to realize that this is a part of what it means to be human. Or maybe, maybe you're just coming to grips with this. Maybe you've been trying to figure out seasons of life, trying to control seasons of life and coming to grips with the reality that they are beyond your control. 
You see, that's essentially what the author, what the preacher in Ecclesiastes is attempting to do for us. He's attempting to remind us that this is the way life is, and in many ways, it is beyond our control. He's describing life's experiences and life's responses, and this is intended, again, to be a complete summary of the seasons of life. There are all kinds of of things we're going to face, all kinds of choices that we're going to have to make and decisions that require wisdom. But the reality is, as we consider life and its complexities and the tensions that exist and what it means to be human, oftentimes we find ourselves seeking for wisdom that seems far beyond us. We're left struggling, grasping, trying, frustrated, confused. And here, the preacher who I believe is Solomon, is directing us to observe life, to soak it all in, to see the bigger picture, all of the seasons and all of the occasions, to teach us the very nature of life so that this life can be lived the way it was intended to be lived. Recognize out the gates that that life is just filled with pain and sorrow. Life is filled with both beauty and tragedy. We live in these strange tensions of life and while there is a rhythm and cadence, it's not only, excuse me, it's not known by us oftentimes, nor is it predictable. Life has a way of catching us off guard, doesn't it? The moment you think everything's fine, the moment then everything explodes in your life. The moment you think you can't take one more day, the next moment you get reprieve and rest. So much beyond our control, so much unpredictable This is what it means to be human, living in the world that we do. Life oftentimes is like a broken record that we can't seem to fix. And there is a time for everything, but we can't put it on our calendar or schedule it the way we would hope to. It's predictable yet not. But you see, there's one phrase at the beginning of this poem that the preacher uses that is so helpful for helping make sense of it all, for helping us consider our life, and it's in verse 1. I want to draw your attention back there for a moment. The preacher says this, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. I wonder if you, you see a subtle difference in the way that he's chosen to communicate. Up to this point, the preacher has talked about life under the, what? Sun. But here he shifts and he uses a very different word and he uses it very intentionally. This word and this phrase under heaven is used actually three times in the book of Ecclesiastes. And every time, what is what the author is doing is he is telling us that God is somehow involved in this and overseeing this. That God is actually a part of this. It's vastly different than life under the sun where God is not involved. And so what he's actually doing is he's saying, look, as you consider the seasons of life, as you consider the rhythms and the cadences and the beauty and the tragedy, I mean, the length of times that you go through these seasons, just understand this, that God is actually overseeing it all. You aren't in control of the seasons of your life, in other words, but there is a God who is. And if you can see that you aren't the one in control of the seasons of life and that God is, you can now begin to do this secondly, understand your time. 
You can understand your time in a different way. And that's exactly what he does in verses 9 through 11. He actually begins to comment on this. He gives his own commentary. He moves from poetry here to prose, and look at what he says. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the, the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. He begins, as he has done already up to this point, to reflect upon his toil, reflect upon what he's been doing with life already. And as he reflects on his toil, again, he begins to understand that there is a great rhythm and order that's built into life. Far from being chaotic and confusing, there seems to be a built-in pattern to the way life seems to go. There seems to be order, not chaos. He begins to see that in the rhythms of life and in the cycles of life and the ups and the downs, there is both a purpose and a plan, something working behind all of this. He tells us here that time is beautiful. It's not something that is entirely burdensome as we often like to believe. We look at time and and we think, man, we're running out of time. And man, if I just had enough time, and man, time is just restricting me in every area of my life. We see time so often as an enemy and a burden, but here he wants us to see that time is beautiful. Time is something precious. Time is filled, yes, with moments of delight and joy, and yes, with pain and problems. And what he wants us to understand as we look at time, as we look at our lives in light of the time that we've been given, is that we have built into us this longing and this search for meaning and purpose. We have the experience of finiteness, but we long for the the infinite. Did you notice what he says there? He says that God, he's talking about God here, has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he, God, has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And that's such a fascinating statement as you read it, that God has built into the human heart this sense of eternity, the sense that there's something more, something different, something beyond, something better, something greater. We have built into us this inherent sense that the life that we're living here and now is in one sense real, but yet a shadow of something different. There is this deep longing in the soul of humanity, whether you're a Christian or an unbeliever, that God has put there and he's put there on purpose. And as you reflect upon life and seasons, the conclusion he wants you to draw is not that all of this is pointless, there's nothing behind this, life is futile, life is vanity. He wants, you to, point, he wants to point you to the exact opposite of that. that there is something more. And so he's built eternity into our hearts. We experience the temporal, but we long for the eternal. It is hardwired into humanity, this, this eternal itch that cannot be humanly scratched. 
We have a deep compulsion within us as human beings to not only know, listen, that things happen, but to know why things happen. And by the way, this is one of the key things that makes us different from the animal world, isn't it? I mean, you you never come home and see your dog pondering the meaning of the universe. I mean, not that I know of, maybe you've got a really smart dog. And he just wants a treat. You know, his tail's wagging. He's like, yeah, he's just happy you're here. He doesn't know why you do what you do. I mean, he sees what you're doing, but not why you're doing it. And he really doesn't care as long as you give him a treat. But humans are different. We observe. We see what's happening. We try to make sense of it all. We have a, a longing to understand why it's happening the way it is. What's behind it all? What does this all mean? And by the way, we see this, don't we, at a very young age? Right? It's, it's hardwired into humanity, the sense of why. I mean, I got a three-year-old son. Okay? I hear why more times than I can count every single day. I'm with my son. I walk out the door this morning. Dad, where are you going? Buddy, I'm going, I'm going to church. Well, why? Uh, God's given me, I, I always start off really theological, by the way, just really deep. So, you know, well, son, you know, God's given me this great privilege and responsibility of, of preaching the word of God, and I get to shepherd the people of God, and I get to show them Jesus Christ. You know, I just start off just like he's going to be like, oh, okay, that, yeah, that's awesome. What do I get? Why? Uh, my, my answers get, like, sloppier as, as the wise begin, right? You guys, you parents, you know what I'm talking about. You try really hard at the beginning, hoping something's going to click this time, and then eventually you're just, like, you're going downhill. Like, well, so I don't know, I, mean, I get paid to do this. I got to do it. I can't not go. <laughs> like, why? I, I have no idea, son. I think, really, I mean, I, God called me to this, and I, I got to do it. Well, why? I don't know, son. Just, just eat, eat your breakfast and watch Paw Patrol, right? This is my life. To which I still get, why? I'm like, I don't know. Everything's vanity, son. Everything's meaningless. I don't know. It's over. We all experience time, but we long for timelessness. And yet, we cannot figure it out apart from God. We are not in control. We, we didn't choose to be born when we were born. We didn't choose the time that we've been born into, the circumstances of our families. We didn't choose to be born during the, the Great Recession or the Second World War or a thousand years ago. It was well beyond our control. And the the point of understanding that you can't control the seasons of life is to understand that you can't control time and you can't control life in many regards because you are not God. We cannot see what God sees. We, we see as human beings, as finite creatures, enough of the picture to appreciate its beauty and its organization. Even somebody apart from God can see that. In fact, that's what God has done in creation, Romans 1 says. That, that God has literally made creation so that people can look and see there's got to be someone who did all of this. There's got to be someone who's powerful enough and beautiful enough and majestic enough to have created all of the beauty and the intricacy and the design that we see so clearly in the world around us. 
We see enough to appreciate it apart from God, but the grand design escapes us apart from God. You see, as human beings, we can never zoom out far enough to gain even a fraction of the whole. We see a pixel of the picture, a sentence in a novel. We have no ability to see the beginning and the end simultaneously. We see slivers of time, one piece of a billion-piece puzzle. And if we look at one piece in this giant puzzle and try to figure out what the whole looks like, it's utterly impossible. We can never fully understand what God is doing. This is the point. You're like, you're asking, why is my life going this way? Why is it happening? The reality that you need to come to grips with is this. You may never fully know why your life is unfolding the way it is, why you are going through the seasons that you're going through, the hardships, the difficulties, the pain, the sorrow, the circumstances, the pressures, the tragedy. You may never know why in the ultimate sense but you can know the God who does. And you can be comforted by the reality that this God knows what he's doing. I mean, think about it, right? That God is sovereign, that he alone is God, that he's in control of your life and your circumstances and all of the seasons that you face. Isn't that an awesome truth? Isn't that way better than there not being a God who's in control? I mean, if there's no God in control, then, then, then everything is left up to fate. There is no purpose behind it. There's no grand design. There's no hope, right? Life is fatalistic. Just don't do anything. Like, who cares? But don't make the mistake of believing that because God is sovereign and in control, that we are simply called to let go and let God. Like, that's a stupid theology. As if we don't have any responsibility as if God hasn't called us to participate in what he's doing here and now, as if our choices don't matter, they do. And his point here is that we cannot control God or the times and seasons that come and go in our lives, and yet, and yet, we are stuck with this inner, unmet, desperate longing to know more than we can. Why? You say, is God just trying to frustrate people? <laughs> like, is God just up there like, I'm going to get them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this long in their heart and I'm gonna watch, watch them chase their tail all day long. <laughs> is God just trying to frustrate people? Yes. 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 He's trying to frustrate you with the answers that you can find in this world alone. He wants you to be frustrated that when you, when you seek out all the answers and, and the hopes and the desires that this world has to offer you, that you will find that none of them answer the question that you have been seeking to figure out. And he wants you at this place of melting frustration, not, listen, this is so important, not to leave you frustrated, but to bring you to clarity and peace. He wants you to understand what it feels like to be in a world that is outside of Eden, a a life that is broken by sin. Again, the the author of Ecclesiastes keeps bringing this idea in. He's painting this picture of, of a broken world, a broken life where sin has invaded our lives in so many different ways. 
sin that we have caused and sin that others have caused, brokenness that we can't control and brokenness that we're often a part of. And he's saying, look, this is, this is the sinful world that we live in. It is a mixture of triumph and tragedy. It is a mis- mixture of pain and pleasure. It is a mixture of joy and sadness. And the fact that we have this longing is actually meant to lead us to a very different conclusion. You see, I love what C.S. Lewis said. He said this, he said, if I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. This isn't it. This is not it. You see the broken And limited time that we have been given is being used by God to force us to consider eternity, to force us to consider what life is really meant for, who life is really meant for. And the more time flies by, the more we long for the eternal. Isn't that true? The moments that keep passing by, you watch your kids get older You watch yourself get older, right? I mean, I'm at the place where celebrating birthdays is no longer fun. Like, I'm getting my hair cut and their buzzers are going and it looks like it's snowing. I'm like, really, Lord? Why am I in this season? But you see, God is constantly in his kindness pointing us to himself. The one who is above time, the one who is sovereign over it, your time is given by God so that you might find and trust your creator, not so that you might be the creator of your own meaning. That you might understand that he is God, not so that you can declare yourself as God. And this life has meaning that is found only when we understand and acknowledge that God is truly above it all. And God has a good purpose in it all. And that is one of the most difficult things to come to grips with, both for believers and unbelievers. It's one of the hardest things to grapple with, especially when your life seems like it's falling apart, especially when you're in so much confusion, to come back to this place where you say, I can't control this, but I trust the one who is in full and total control over my life and over all the circumstances I will face. And yet, can I just encourage you? When you get there, it is the most freeing place to be in the midst of difficulty and tragedy. To trust God to believe that he is good and that he does good things, to believe that God sees the effects of sin in this world and that he actually has a plan to bring about true change. You see, when you understand your time, you can then do this, redeem his time. Redeem his time. In verse 12 through 15, look at what it says. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. You see how he's turned the corner and God is brought into the picture and he seems to be giving us direction then on how to live our lives, how to make the most of our time. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear Him before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. 
This is really a call to redeem our time. It's a call to respond to the truth that he has laid out, that God is sovereign over our time, that God is the one in total control of the seasons of our lives and over life in general. We may not be responsible, listen, this is so important for us to grasp this morning, we may not be responsible for the times and seasons that come into our lives, but we are responsible for how we choose to respond to them. I cannot overstate that point enough. Too often we're too busy trying to control our circumstances instead of controlling how we choose to respond to our circumstances. How will you respond? This is the question right now for you and me. I'm in here too. Because believe me, difficulty, tragedy, sorrow, and pain are coming all of our ways. And if you're not in it, it's not if, it's when. How will you respond when these seasons come? Both the good, the bad, and the ugly. Let me ask you this. How are you responding right now? How are you responding right now to whatever season of life you're in? The preacher is hinting at something here for us, that life does matter, that this this creation has a creator, that he has given your life purpose, and he is overseeing all the affairs and seasons of your life. Therefore, you must make the most of your time. You must learn to respond properly to the time that you have been given. You must choose to redeem the time that God has given to you. So how do I do that? I've got three ways you do that drawn right from this text. The first is this, be faithful. You want to redeem your time? Simply do this, be faithful. Verses 12 and 13, he really spells this out. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Did you catch that? Be joyful and do good as long as you live. That's another way of saying, listen, joyfully do the right thing while you live on this earth. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is a gift, God's gift to man. You see, what he's calling us to do here is to recognize that the time that we've been given by God is actually a gift to be stewarded properly. That God has chosen to bless us with time, and therefore we will be held accountable for our time. And what is required of every, faithful, of every steward? That he be found what? Faithful. You see, to waste time is actually to squander a gift from God. Every moment spent, listen, in our lives, worrying, fearing, controlling, complaining, whining, fighting, is a moment, listen, that most likely we are not enjoying as a gift because we are not trusting that God is sovereign. That's what worry and fear and anxiety are, by the way. It is not believing that God is the one in control. It's not trusting actively that God is actually in control of the circumstances of your life. It is choosing instead to be the one who feels like they must take control. And every time we try to play God, it never goes well, does it? When was the last time you're like, God, I got this one, move over, I figured it out. And it actually went somewhere good for you. Uh, how about none? And yet we do this over and over, don't we? Constantly worrying, constantly fearing, constantly controlling. 
Not only that, constantly complaining about the circumstances of our life. Isn't that true? I mean, I can't, I mean, I, I'm guilty, guilty as charged. I mean, the, I mean, believe me, the Lord is convicting me of my own sinful disposition, my own sinful tendencies, my, my unwillingness to be thankful for the gift that God has given me, or to be thankful for the time that I have, to be squandering so much time on foolish, trivial things that ultimately don't matter and aren't doing me any good or anybody else. And the call here to enjoy what God has given as a gift to us. Listen, ultimately, here's what you need to understand. It's a call for us to actually enjoy being human. To stop trying to play God and start actually being human. Be who and what you were created to be. You weren't created to be God. So how about you stop playing God and let God be the sovereign God of the universe, right? It's much more enjoyable, right, to just fill your role. A hammer wasn't made for plowing a garden. It was made for hitting nails. You as a human being were not made to play God. You were made to submit to him. And when you do, you fulfill the purpose for which God has created for you. But you see the fall into sin and Adam and Eve, really this is again, it's the picture of humanity. It is the symbolic, it is the literal but symbolic picture of what humanity is and tries to do. You see in the fall, in our attempt to become deity, we actually lost our humanity. We wanted to be God so bad that we lost the essence of what it means to be human. And the struggle goes on daily in our hearts and in our lives. God's like, just be human. Submit to me. Stop trying to control everything that's not under your control. Stop trying to play me. Just come under me. Come under my loving lordship. Come under my loving care. Trust me. And we spend so much time trying to control the seasons that come into our lives. It gets exhausting, doesn't it? Because we can't do it. Be human is what the preacher says. Enjoy life as a gift and do what's right. Be faithful with what God has given to you as a human being. Be faithful with your time, with your resources. Be faithful in your workplace. Be faithful in your families. Be faithful in all the things that God has given to you to rightly enjoy. Be faithful. Secondly, notice this. He says, be fearful. You want to redeem your time? Be fearful. You say, what? That doesn't make sense. I'm not going to walk around being scared. Good. I don't want you to walk around being scared. But did you see what he says in verse 14 here? He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. In other words, again, remember, God is the sovereign one. What God does will last forever, not what I do. Nothing can be added to it or nothing taken away from it. God, listen, God is in complete control of all things. God knows what he's doing. He's got the master plan. We don't. We can trust him. He recognizes that. And look at what he says. God has done it so that people fear before him. And you say, well, why would God say something like that? Why, why would he want us to see his sovereignty and then live lives of fear? Well, listen, time reminds us of our finiteness, but it also reminds us of our limitations. And it calls us to embrace those limitations. Again, it's, I know, I'm sounding like a broken record up here. It's, it's, it's we're human, we're not God. We're human, we're not God. Close your Bibles, let's pray. Right? But I want you to notice why this is done. This is so, so important. You see, God's sovereignty has a functional purpose in our lives. 
And that function is that so we live lives in full submission to him. The idea of fear that is talked about here is not one of simply shuddering or being scared before God, but of being in awe of him. This is a a reverential adoration of God. This is the kind of fear that when you get before somebody of this magnitude, somebody of this majesty and holiness and purity and sovereignty, when you realize that he knows the beginning from the end, not just because he sees it, but because he did it. I mean, the response is just this awe of this, this God is the one who is ruling over all things. This God is the one who has made me to know him and to love him and to worship him. That's the kind of fear that this is driving us toward. It is a worshipful fear with hearts that are bowed low before him, giving him the honor and the adoration and the glory that is due his name. This is the way that he calls us to redeem our time. When you get to this place where you see the glory of God above all else, when you fear him, the beginning of wisdom, right, is the fear of God, is not? This is the path to living a life worth living and listen, a life that will be pleasing to God. This is the declaration that he is so much greater than we can possibly fathom. It's the declaration that, God, I am so dependent upon you. For everything, God, you're the one who gives life and breath. You're the one who gives meaning and purpose. God, all comes from your hand. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. It's the recognition that, God, you hold life and the universe, my life, and the life of everyone else, and the life of this entire universe, it's all held in the palm of your hand. I mean, Jesus Christ is sustaining this entire universe right now by the word of his power. But you see, here's the reality. Listen, you need to hear this. God intends for us to fear him, but he does not impose it upon us. You can choose to humbly bow before him yourself, and to recognize that he is sovereign. Or you can choose in your stubbornness and in your pride to stand against and oppose him. The Bible says that this standing against him is the reason for all of our struggles in the human life. Your greatest struggles are not your circumstances. Your greatest struggle is standing opposed to God and what he wants to do in you, and for you, and through you. He calls us to submit to him, to be fearful, to have a life of worship, and then finally, if you want to redeem your time, he says you need to be fruitful. Redeeming, remember, it's his time. It's, it's not ultimately our time. When we, when we come to grips with this reality, we realize that the time that we have is not actually our own. It's a gift from God. And this reminds us that we, though often trying to control our life, find that that is not the answer, that we are calling God to be the one in control of our lives. And in verse 15, here's what he says, that which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away And the essence of what he means there as as he writes these words 
is that God ultimately is in control of all the moments of time, past, present, and future. And you see, what's been driven away here is this idea of time, of moments, right? We think moments are fleeting, right? They're here one second and then it's gone, never to be retrieved. But you want to know who retrieves every second and every moment of time? It's God. Nothing escapes his notice. This is so important. Nothing escapes his gaze. Nothing escapes his memory. Every moment of your life is under the microscope of God. You may have long forgotten so many things in your life, but God sees them all. He knows them all, and he is taking all into account. And as we are striving to be faithful, and we do that by being fearful and living a life of worship, the desire of our hearts as we look at our time should be to be fruitful, that we would have lives, and by the way, Jesus says this in John 15, right? Abide in me and you will bear much fruit. God desires this for us, that our lives would birth fruit that is pleasing to him. And God is going to retrieve all time and bring every single moment of our lives and every other person's life in this universe into account. You have no time, listen to this, to which you are not accountable to God. Henry Thoreau said this, I I love this, you cannot kill time without injury to eternity. You say, well, well, how can I trust that God is actually in control? Some of you are still wrestling with that question. Some of you are trying to figure this out, and and I commend you for that, and I encourage you to do that. How do I know that God is is actually in control? And maybe maybe you're asking this question, how do I know God really cares about me, my, my life? How do I know that God is personally invested in my time and in my life? How do I know God really cares deeply about that? Well, you see, the Bible shows us over and over how God is not unaware of times and seasons. It reminds us over and over again how God is sovereign and in control of all the seasons of life, how he is in complete control and personally invested in the unfolding of time. It reminds us that God is the one who spoke and time was created. It reminds us that God is bringing all things to a close. But I want you to see how personally God is invested in the unfolding of time when it comes to your life. And I want to do that by just reminding you of how Jesus Christ thought of time. First of all, just note this, that God himself entered into time for you and me. At the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus said this. He said, the time, listen, the time is fulfilled, pointing to a greater plan. And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. You see, the God who controls time steps into time to save us at the perfect time. The the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news about a timeless God who stepped into our world of time, endured the suffering and frustration and restrictions and limitations of time. He endured every season of time in order to free us from the vanity of time, from the pointlessness of time. Paul said in Romans 5, 6, that for a while we were still weak at, listen to this, the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus didn't show up late, people. Every part of his life was crafted towards a very specific moment in time. Do you realize that? I mean, just read through the Gospels. Jesus was constantly saying, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. Why? Because he was walking to the beat of the Father's timeline. 
every moment under the sovereign control of God, Jesus stepping into it, always knowing the right time for everything. Let me give you one more verse. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, he is working off of the Father's perfect timetable, everything calculated to the second, happening exactly as he planned it. Jesus Christ is described in the book of Revelation as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Time only finds its purpose and meaning in him. And one of the things that I grow to appreciate, maybe you too, you do too more and more as I get older, is the sacrifice that parents make with their time for their kids. Some of you maybe haven't experienced this, and so the thought of your parents was one of experiencing no time. They didn't have time. They wouldn't give you the time. Their time was so precious. But I look back on my childhood, and, and this becomes more vivid for me as I, as I have kids, and, and all of a sudden God's stirring my heart to remember my childhood and how much time my parents invested in us, how much they sacrificed for us, what they gave of themselves and their time to pour into us. And the more I think about it, the more thankful I am for the sacrifice that they have made and continue to make. It's a special thing, isn't it? Listen, all of us can relate to this at some level. It's a special thing to see someone else sacrifice so much of their time for you out of love, isn't it? But can I just encourage you to this? Jesus spent his whole time and life for you. All of his time for you. Living rightly in this world obeying the law perfectly, suffering on the cross. Jesus spent his time naked, beaten, tortured, humiliated. He spent his time hanging on a cross, being mocked and scorned. He chose to endure these things for you, and he chose to endure them for me, to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine, to hang on the cross and to absorb the wrath of God, to strip away the meaninglessness of life, to strip away the vanity of life that sin has produced. He took it all on himself so that he could give us and restore to us the meaning and purpose for which we were created. And if that's not enough, listen, he sacrificed all for you, but he's still sacrificing and spending his time for you. Do you know that? At the right hand of the Father, interceding on your behalf, he still is using his time for you. Jesus spent his time on earth for you so that you might spend your time in eternity with him. But here and now, he's calling us to use our time as we see our time in light of what he has done. Listen, he has redeemed us with his time so that we might redeem our time for him. That we might bear much fruit. Knowing this helps us really to redeem our time. Knowing what he did helps us to consider how we use our time, to consider how we will respond in the various seasons of life. We look to Jesus and we see that if he spent his life for redemptive purposes, so too should we. In every season of life, whether it be sorrow and pain, whether it be joy and praise, how will you respond? 
How will you use your time for him and for his glory? You see, you will know how to respond rightly to the times and seasons of life when you respond rightly to the God who created them. That's the preacher's point. We are called to redeem our time, Paul says, for the days are evil. We are responsible, listen, not for the seasons of life that we're in necessarily. We are responsible for how we choose to respond to them. How are you responding now? Are you finding yourself resisting God in this season of life? Are you finding yourself with or without Jesus right now? Are you fleeing from God or are you drawing near to God? Are you humbly trusting him in this season of your life as hard as it may be? Or are you pridefully questioning and resisting his goodness to you? We are not always given the details to God's plan, but we are always given the power to obey it, church. One of the best examples of this is right after Jesus was about to ascend to heaven in Acts chapter 1, verse 7, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, is it not, uh, is it not for you to know, or sorry, they ask him, sorry, when God's going to restore the kingdom to Jerusalem? And here's his response in verse 7. He says, is it not for you to know times or seasons? It is not for you. That the Father has fixed by his own authority. But instead of leaving them there going, oh, okay, I guess we'll wander around trying to figure out what to do. Here's what he says. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the end of the earth. You don't know why God is doing what he's doing, why he has you in the season. But he's given you the power to be who he's calling you to be in the midst of the season. He's called you to be fruitful. He's called you to put Jesus Christ on full display regardless of what you're going through and how hard it may be. And I wanna be really sensitive to that right now because some of you are in really deep, dark places and we wanna comfort you and love you and we want you to find the hope in Jesus but we want you, I desperately want you to respond the way that Jesus calls you to respond so that he would be magnified in your life. So that all would look and see, how is it possible that you're responding like that? And the only answer you can give is this, I know the God who's sovereign over it all. And I trust him completely. Go to the word of God to see how you respond rightly. Go to the the community of faith to ask how you can respond with wisdom But how are you using your time? Let me just end with this. Are you using your time to the glory of God? Have you been redeeming your time? Or are you being lazy and apathetic and complacent with the gift of time that God has handed to you and one day you will give an account for? Listen, this is a call to action, church. Let's put foolishness aside and let's choose to redeem the time. Let's take hold of the time that God has given for you never know when it will run out. Use your time to serve Jesus, to bless others, to advance the kingdom purposes that he has given to the church to accomplish. We are to redeem the time because we have been redeemed. Because we are not our own any longer. And neither is our time. Redeem your time. Redeem your time. Live today like it may be your last because it might truly be. You have now to live for Jesus. 
right now in this moment and you are promised no other. And in two minutes time, it will be now to live for Jesus. And when you are facing hardship in your marriage or with your kids or with your finances, now is the time to respond to Jesus. Or when you face plenty and joy and laughter, now is the time to respond to Jesus and to redeem your time for him and for his glory. There is a time to live, and that time is now. But there will come a time to die. Are you ready? Are you ready? The time is now to live for Jesus, whatever season of life you're in. But time is ticking away. It's time to respond appropriately. Are you ready to die? Jesus is coming again and he will judge the living and the dead. This is what the scriptures teach. This is what God has declared. The time is coming and he longs to meet you face to face, to embrace you in love and in grace. You see, Ecclesiastes 3 reminds us that our, the time on our hands isn't really our time at all. It's God's time and ultimately it's in his hands. Have you recognized that you're not in control? Have you surrendered to the one who is in control? Now is the time if you haven't. Now is the time. The scriptures say, listen, today, today, for he appoints a certain day, Hebrews says. Right here, right now. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Don't wait one more second. Come now to Jesus, the God and Savior, for all time and for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you. The God of all time. The God who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. The God who is in sovereign control of the universe. And Father, we hear the call to our hearts to respond to you. And so, Lord, I pray, I pray for our hearts right now, Lord. I pray for those who don't know you, Lord. I pray, God, for those who have walked in this place and who are struggling to find meaning and purpose in life. God, that you would meet with them. That you would open their eyes to the truth of Jesus Christ that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn to you in faith, that God in grace, you would lavish your grace upon them in this moment. And God, for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, God, may we hear the call to our hearts, Lord, our time is not our own. God, our life is not our own. We have been bought with a price and you have called us, Lord, to redeem the time for the days are evil. God, give us a heart of wisdom that we may number our days, O Lord, that our time would be used for you and for your glory. Give us an enjoyment in this life, Lord. Give us a joy in knowing that we have you. We have life. And may it be our joy, Lord, to go to all the earth to reflect the life that we have in Christ and to call people into the life that you and you alone can offer. God, in whatever season we're in, may we be found faithful. May we respond, Lord, to the circumstances that have been brought into our lives that are under your sovereign care. And may we do so in a way that brings you great, great glory. We pray, Lord, now that you would fill our hearts with praise and that you would receive this song as an act of worship unto you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.